Thank you for joining us for this podcast episode at the Center for Biblical Studies and Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Jimmy Rowe, and I'm joined by the director of the Center for Biblical Studies and research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern, Dr. Andreas Kostenberg. Today, we're also joined by our guest, Dr. Peter Williams, who is principal of Tyndall House in Cambridge in the UK. He's also delivering the Sizemore Lectures on campus. Dr. Williams, it's great to be with you today. In a previous episode on our podcast, we discussed your book, Can We Trust the Gospels, published by Crossway in 2018. In 2017, Crossway also published the Greek New Testament produced at Tyndall House, otherwise known as the THGNT. Uh, Please tell us about the genesis of this project. Yeah, so that began about a decade earlier when a number of us at Tinder House uh, thought about the opportunities that there were for editing the Greek New Testament. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a good edition with the Nestle Alain's uh, scholarly edition and uh, uh, nothing against that. But we also saw there's an opportunity to try and pursue uh, things even further in terms of uh, presenting the best possible text. So one of the things we've done is we've sought to make sure that every paragraph mark comes from manuscripts far as I know, no modern editions ever tried uh, to do that. And it gives you a much more authentic uh, experience. We tried to make sure all of the spelling and the accentuation was based on manuscripts, the breathings, so that, uh, and we wanted to present the text in as simple a way as possible. So we've made it so there's actually no critical signs in the main text. We've allowed four types of punctuation mark. We've allowed verse numbers just, just for ease. But other than that, we've tried to make it as clean a text as possible, as uninterpreted a text as possible. And we feel that that sits alongside other editions. So if someone wants to come to a very clean page, which hasn't had lots of things predecided for them, then this is a very good edition to do. It's an edition that encourages reading. Um, it encourages you to read on rather than to break up and, and, and look at the footnotes at the bottom. So that, th- those are all uh, things that we wanted to achieve. I mean, we do believe that in terms of the actual uh, wording and text of the New Testament, it's the most accurate ever printing of the Greek New Testament. I know it's a big uh, claim to make, but, you know, printing's only been around for 500 years and we stand on the shoulders of giants and are able to benefit from their work. I mean, the, the fact that there are so many manuscripts available now online, there's so much data available online, does allow us to do in a decade what would have taken, you know, a century or more before. So uh, that's the context for for that claim. We're we're very, very grateful to others for doing prior work for us. I had the privilege of moderating the discussion of the new uh, Indo House Greek New Testament at the annual meeting of the ETS. uh, couple of years ago, and, and and I thought it was a historic occasion. I think people don't realize that uh, it's not every day that a new edition of the Greek New Testament is released. And, and so I think we we, we maybe lack the, uh, the, the, the hindsight and perspective of history, but I think it's a really um, historic um, project. And I'm, you know, as an exegete, uh, as you mentioned, one of the things I appreciate uh, in particular is the freedom for the reader to be unencumbered by some of those intrusive headings that sometimes maybe steer us in in potentially misleading direction. I'm thinking of of, of uh, uh, John chapter three, for example, the the Nicodemus narrative, uh, where the uh, chapter division starts right with Nicodemus coming to Jesus, and so uh, you know many people preaching on on that narrative would naturally uh, start with chapter 3 verse 1 but but uh, looking at the the Tyndall House Greek New Testament uh, you actually 
see on the page uh, a paragraph starting with uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse uh, 23 that uh, talks about uh, Jesus being at the feast in Jerusalem uh, and that many believed on him on account of the signs he was doing, but yet Jesus did not entrust himself uh, to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And then almost seamlessly in, in, in the, the, the Greek, uh, it talks about the fact that there was not one of those people, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who complimented Jesus on the signs he was doing uh, and uh, engaged in this, you might say, superficial flattery. But as it turned out, Jesus knew what was in his heart. And so he did not entrust himself to them. He didn't fall for Nicodemus's opening pleasantries. And so he radically shifts the topic of conversation uh, from the signs he was doing to uh, Nicodemus's need for regeneration. And, and by implication, uh, all of Judaism uh, really uh, needing uh, an infusion of, of, of new spiritual life. And so it's that kind of thing that that makes this uh, translation so valuable, I think, that it, it leaves it open for us as exegetes and as preachers, as readers of Scripture, to to pick up on the fact that you have more of a seamless narrative. And where we're, we're 222 to 25 uh, serves both as the conclusion of the temple cleansing, which goes before, and also as introduction to the Nicodemus narrative. So I think there's just tremendous payoff um, and I'm sure PD could supply additional examples. Yes, I mean, I, I would say, you know, it's not that we've got the paragraphs all right. The, the, the manuscripts do differ amongst themselves. But uh, if, which would you prefer to have old paragraphs or ones that are made up by a modern editor? And it seems to me obvious that we ought to go for old. In some cases, I think you can make a case that these are probably the original paragraph markings. I don't think it's likely that every single paragraph mark put in by a New Testament author was obliterated in the case of, 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 of copying. And also what we can see is that it, it allows us um, to think how could this express itself for instance in english translation so my hope is that in 20 or 30 years it'd be unthinkable that english translations and other modern translations would ignore paragraph marks from manuscripts so my hope is that this in a sense begins a bit of revolution and even sometimes asking yourself the questions about where do paragraphs begin and end uh, can challenge us. So, for instance, one of the things I realized after we had finished this, this edition is my view of what a paragraph mark, paragraph was, changed. I'd always grown up with the idea that a paragraph was a grouped set of ideas. And, that, and, and, and what you find is so often an idea continues across a paragraph boundary in the New Testament. So what a paragraph is really doing is it's a new highlighting mechanism that's highlighting, it can be a change of scene, a change of action, or it can be highlighting a new onset. It can happen, you can get paragraphs in um, where you have a conversation and you start each part with a new uh, paragraph, but it, it's really a uh, fundamentally a highlighting mechanism. And that's slightly different from it being a discontinuity mechanism. Because I think a lot of people see it as discontinuity mechanism. And I think that's not as helpful um, because that won't explain times when a theme goes across paragraph boundaries. So all of those things are helpful ways of thinking. One of my favorite paragraph marks is actually in Mark chapter 4, verse 3, where uh, it's the parable of the sower. And Jesus says, listen, akuate is the Greek. And then there's a new paragraph mark. And then it goes, behold, the sower went out to sow. Now, 
most people nowadays would put the paragraph before Jesus begins speaking, not after the first word of his speech. But of course it is. Listen up, guys. That's the first word of his speech. Then you have a pause. Then, behold, let your mind's imagination visualize this uh, person going out to sow. And then you realize that the end of that paragraph ends, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you've got two paragraphs in a row ending with the word listen. And this is a very striking thing. And we only saw this after we'd followed the manuscripts where, um, you know, there's a large consensus of the early manuscripts there in having the paragraph mark there. And once we'd followed it, then things made sense. Yeah, I was just uh, looking at, for example, Hebrews 11. Mm -hmm. Great. Oh, by faith. Yeah. By faith. And you see that pistae lead every verse there. And it's Mm -hmm. just visually stunning, actually, just just looking at that. So another example, uh, I think, of of, of really uh, the innovative nature of of the Tyndall House Greek New Testament would be the order of the New Testament books. Uh, You know, conventionally, you have the Gospels and Acts followed by Paul's epistles and then the so-called general epistles and then Revelation. But uh, you have a different order. Can you? Yeah, and and I would say you know what's conventional depends on what you're used to. So what 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 we've really got in modern English translations is we've got the order of the Latin West, the predominant order of the Latin West. But actually, in in most Greek manuscripts, um, Acts and the Catholic epistles go together. So you know it's Acts, James, one Peter, and so on. That's that's the order. Now. It seemed to us that you should group those earlier. And there aren't that many pandects or, or manuscripts that have all of the New Testament in. But what, ones that are predominantly are going to have the order Gospels, Acts and Catholic Epistles, uh, Paul, and then Revelation. Now, with Paul, we've kept things in their traditional Western order. But there there could be real debates about where you put Hebrews. You know, Hebrews can vary in some of the early manuscripts. So we're not trying to... Uh, argue that this is a an inspired order i don't think that there is a um a, a god given order quite uh in in that sense i mean there is a sense in which uh, acts really needs to go to next to luke but luke also needs to go next to mark and john so there are arguments uh, uh both both ways ideally you'd have a, a matrix you know uh, a hypertext um you know uh, or if you were thinking of these as rolls in jars or or something like that you know but but if you're going to lay them out under under a cover, you've got to choose an order, and and so there are merits to different orders, and and this is what we we've gone for. It's very helpful, I think, as an interpretive strategy for again someone studying uh, the New Testament to 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 look at Acts as essentially providing a framework. And many of us have taught New Testament survey that way for years, and then you plug in the the different general epistles and the Pauline epistles within the framework of Acts. Isn't that part of the thinking behind that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think Paul will never get an- ignored in the New Testament, but there is, there's always a danger that the Catholic epistles will get ignored. So I, I think there is, that, that's a, another benefit to that. I mean, it's not entirely new. Uh, I think Westcott and Hort have that order. I think uh, Morris Robinson has that order. Other people have had that in the past. But uh, yes, it's uh, being revived, let's say. Yes. Um, just an example of your approach. Can you share any significant readers that re- readings that might differ from other critical editions, or more some of the most challenging textual decisions you faced? Well, I mean, one of the things we have in Romans chapter five and verse one is we just got one letter def- different from what uh, t- people typically have, but uh, you know, uh, therefore. Um, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is, is the way it traditionally goes. And uh, there, instead of we have, we have, uh, instead of an Omicron, we have an Omega. And that could mean let us have. Now, people can debate whether that's actually what's going on. Uh, we're only making a decision about spelling, uh, not about meaning. Uh, but it seems to be fairly well attested that that's the way uh, things should be. And, and so that's what we, we've done. It's, it's overwhelming uh, in terms of the early um, uh, attestation. So uh, that would be a, a case. Um, there are... I mean, I wouldn't want to emphasize that we have lots and lots of differences. In fact, one of the lovely things has been how little different um, uh, in in some ways we are from other editions because there's such a stability to the New Testament um, wording that we haven't had to change radically. Uh, so in terms of the verses that we have or omit, we're not in a different position from where Nestle Land uh, are. Uh, we haven't used brackets round verses, um, so uh, that's where we we are. We basically landed in the in the same place. Um, you know, we we've been pretty confident in terms of um, in some variants where people are, are attracted by the idea in Mark one forty one that Jesus got angry rather than. Uh, uh, was filled with compassion. Uh, we we don't think that get angry is as tall a serious contender. Uh, we think it's 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 uh, it's uh, a, a, it's poorly attested in manuscripts and also is easily explainable in terms of how it arises because the word to be angry was a very common word. The word to be filled with compassion was a very rare and unusual word at the earliest transmission stage. So in fact, we look at it and say. Angry could easily arise as someone just looks at the beginning and end of this word and tries to make sense of it. So um, all of that will uh, justify in a commentary we're uh, going to bring out soon. Uh, but uh, you know, overall, we'd want to stress the stability of the New Testament. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that commentary and any other ancillary products, perhaps that will you know grow over time and be associated with so, the. Yes, yeah, so, so the main uh, editor on that commentary is Dirk Yonkin, who is of course main editor on the Greek New Testament. He's also being uh, helped by Elijah Hickson, who um, uh, recently finished his PhD on the purple manuscripts in. Um, so an Edinburgh-based PhD, these are 5th and 6th century manuscripts in purple with silver and gold ink, you know, very deluxe uh, manuscripts. And uh, he's uh, got a very good knowledge of, of the way manuscripts work. And again, one of the things that will come through that is to try and justify what we do on the basis of studies of scribal habits, that is specific familiarity with each of the main witnesses we're, we're, we're citing, what are its common errors and aberrations and making sure we don't use those when we're appealing to um, them for evidence. So I think sometimes people have had a certain distance from the manuscripts. This is going to be um, something which is uh, written by people very familiar with that. And therefore, it will say differ from Bruce Metzger has a textual commentary, which I think is a little bit more arm's length about those sorts of things, uh, sometimes counting X number of witnesses against Y on the other side. And this will be seeking to uh, really uh, go deeper in terms of explaining why one reading arises. Definitely a fresh approach. I think, you know, one thing as a theological educator, as a, as a seminary professor who's actually teaching New Testament Greek, uh, I loved hearing your vision for how 
publishing this new Greek New Testament can hopefully encourage more people to actually read their New Testaments in the Greek. Can you share a little bit with us about that? Yes. So, so I think um, if you were to go to a synagogue, you wouldn't be surprised at lots of people reading Hebrew. If you were to go to a mosque, you wouldn't be surprised at lots of people reading Arabic. And yet somehow in a church, we're shocked by the idea that even an adult might read in Greek. And if they're reading in Greek, it must be because they're trying to show off or something. They've got, they, you know, and I think uh, we, we've lost uh, something where, where we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that God gave us scripture in Hebrew and Greek, and it's a good thing to learn uh, that. And so I think, um, you know, you wouldn't expect there to be a rabbi who doesn't know Hebrew. You wouldn't expect there to be an imam who doesn't know Arabic. But can there be a pastor who doesn't know the original languages? Yes, that's fine. You know, and I think uh, not, not, nothing against pastors who are great shepherds who don't know the original languages. God bless them. And, you know, uh, we need more shepherds. But but we shouldn't be satisfied at the thought that you can feed people uh, with the word of God without having taken seriously that challenge of trying to learn the languages. And that's just for pastors, but I also say for lay people. Um, you can all, everyone can learn a bit. One analogy I give is ingredients on tins and food. Look, we're not, most of us are not nutritionists. I will never be a nutritionist. But as a parent, sometimes I have a moral duty uh, in our culture to read what's on the tin. And I treat it as normal that we, we would do a bit of that without claiming to be scientists and nutritionists. Why can't we get it so that it's normal for lay Christians to read what's on the tin about the original languages. Without claiming to be language experts, they take an interest. So part of it is we need to make that information more available to them. We need to make it more accessible to people because we all take notice of those sorts of details. And suddenly we're talking about kilojoules and kilocalories and all the rest um, at, at, at certain certain points. And, and you know, lipids and all of all of these sorts of things that many of us probably don't have much of a concept of, but we got some idea and we get into it. You know, the saturates, the unsaturates, all of these sorts of things. That that's become part of normal vocabulary. Can we not have a revolution whereby something about original languages would be a little bit more accessible to Christians? Now you might say, well, li a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but actually, a little knowledge is only a dangerous thing when you're surrounded by people with no knowledge. Now, if someone starts spouting nonsense about dietary matters nowadays, there are enough people who've got enough knowledge to bring them down pretty quickly. They're, they're, they're going to look like a fool pretty quickly because enough of us feel we know enough to, to do that. So that's where I'm not worried about educating basic lay people in biblical languages, provided we do it widely enough, because that way nonsense will not spread. And you're right. Uh, so there's an educational mission as well. And uh, uh, listening to you talk at the ETS meeting, I realized that very often as, 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 as scholars, uh, we have, without meaning to, actually put obstacles in people's way of, of, of reading the New Testament, uh, and and we need to need to do a better job to to remove those obstacles. So I think that's very uh, a wonderful side benefit, if you will. This is not just another scholarly edition of the Greek New Testament, but the underlying vision is one to make it easier for for uh, people who are interested to to actually read the. the Bible in the original languages uh, who have never done so before. And I think for those of us who are committed 
to the authority of Scripture uh, rightly interpreted uh, in the original languages. I mean, this is certainly a very welcome development. We can all partner together in this in this cause. Yeah, it seems like the readability of of this edition is a, is a high was a high priority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a third of of the number of pages from other scholarly editions. Yeah, so even if people might editions. use a necessarily online for scholarly purposes, certainly at the very least they could use this as a reader's Greek New Testament. Exactly. Um, just before we wrap up our, our conversation, Dr. Williams, maybe you can share a little bit about how the um, edition has been received mm-hmm. among scholars and pastors and how you hope it will be continued to use, be used? Well, I mean, it, it's been received well. Most of the feedback we've got has been pretty positive, um, but it's still just the first step. So, you know, it's t- 10 years before the first step, but our aim is to build on this. So we, we'll, we'll have supporting articles, we'll have commentary. There's obviously there's a reader's edition now uh, come out with Crossway, which has got half of the page taken up with the less common vocabulary. We hope to have a diglot that's Greek and English facing pages soon. Um, We'll have the commentary coming out. So our aim is to build on this and get more and more resources. That sounds uh, fantastic. We look actually look forward to some of those uh, forthcoming um, editions as well as uh, some of the other resources. Do you know exactly when some of those our aim will be to, published? It's to have something appearing every year. So this this uh, in 2019, we'll have an introduction, a short introduction to the Greek New Testament by Dirk Yonkin coming out. Wonderful. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Peter Williams, for joining us today. And I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast episode at the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Again, we hope this conversation was helpful for you. Please join us again next time. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.